girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin. You have your own translation in there we'll be referring to in place you can ask us questions. We're continuing our journey this morning through the book of Ecclesiastes. This morning we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, uh, looking at verses 10 through 15. <clears throat> Before we go to God's Word, let's go to God together in prayer. Now, Lord, we ask that you would indeed guide us this day by your Word, for it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Feed us this morning by your word, for as your son said, we are not to live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from your mouth. Oh Lord, may your word like a fire purify us. May your word like a hammer break our hard hearts that we would be receptive to your gospel. Speak to us and minister to us through your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Well, I have to tell you that you know, I'm not sure exactly if you know how this works, but you know, typically the sermon preparation is for a typical Sunday morning is about 15 hours. If it's a particularly hard text, it's about maybe 20 hours of preparation throughout the week. And during the week, the, the, the text inter, interacts with my heart when John Mark's preaching, interacts with his heart. And so what we come is to kind of give you the overflow of what this text has done to us throughout our study. And I have to confess something. I had to keep it hidden during the week because it's kind of embarrassing. But this text brought me to weeping twice this week. Just, I mean, completely undone by the grace of God that we're going to see. And so I tell you that to prepare you that you better buckle up. Because this is a great text, and I'm just going to give all of that to you this morning. And I want to start out by kind of just asking a very popular question you'll hear a lot, and that's this. It's why do bad things happen to good people? We've heard that, right? There's a famous book out written by a, a, a liberal rabbi who is an atheist, actually, which is, wait, may, doesn't make a lot of sense for him to be a rabbi. Famous question. It's very popular, but there's another question, actually. Usually asked in the minds of earnest Christians afraid to say it out loud. Here it is. Why do so many good things happen to bad people? Why do the wicked prosper, in other words? It's one of the big mysteries that we just don't understand. And so this pastor philosopher is actually going to tackle that question this morning, right here, right now. Definitively, he's going to look at that. And so with that set up in mind, would you look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 10 through 15. This is God's Word. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were forgotten in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Now, oh, this is God's Word. 
And so this pastor philosopher, he's making the case that wisdom, that living in a relationship with the Creator provides resources for living under the sun by tapping into this world beyond the sun. And so specifically to answer this question, why do bad things or why do good things happen to bad people? He's coming down to this. Here's our theme for today. Here's what we're going to look at. When what God promises doesn't appear true, gospel wisdom throws a party. Yeah, that's it. When what God promises doesn't appear true, the answer is that gospel wisdom throws a party. And for those of you crinkling your brows and looking very skeptical, hopefully in a few minutes you won't be so. Because what this text is going to show us is that in the challenges of life, gospel wisdom avoids the folly of karma that so many of us slip into. Instead, it embraces a defiant theology of hope, and then it throws a party. So let's look at this together. So first of all, gospel wisdom avoids the folly of karma. Karma is all over the church world. You may not use that term, but it is all over the church world. It looks something like this. The thought process is, I'm saved by grace, but the quality of my subsequent life is based on my performance. So if I'm a good person, God gives me good. Good things happen to me when I behave. So if we see someone struggling, if we see someone under constant trial or difficulty, karma kicks in and we think, ooh, I wonder what they did. They've been bad. Who sinned that that this is happening to them? See, this text attacks that mentality straight up, says, no, that's not how it works. Look with me at verse 10. He says this. He says, look, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were forgotten in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. See, the wicked people, they did all this stuff. They were religiously observant. They would go in and out of the holy place. That means they were in worship consistently. They were involved in the life of the city, but once they were buried, they were forgotten. They didn't get good. It didn't work out for them. Here's how he put it for the kids. Boys and girls, let's look at your translation of verse 10. Here's what it says. It says, I saw the funerals of bad people who were always in church and well-known, yet they were forgotten so fast it's like they never lived. That bugs me. See, remember, we've had this idea before in Ecclesiastes. You've got to kind of remember, this is one book, but we're looking at it piecemeal. This idea of having a remembrance, of having a memorial, is very important to their culture. This a deep cultural drive to be remembered after you were gone. To be forgotten in such a culture was the ultimate failure. Being forgotten was the punishment for their wickedness. And it bugs the writer. Why? Because the wicked person himself didn't experience the punishment, and so it didn't do him any good. Here, here's here's what, what, what he's talking about, okay? So we live near a swamp, because we live in Orangeburg, and we're all near a swamp, right? So when we bought our house a couple years ago, at closing, the previous owners told us, get a cat, or you will have lots of reptiles, most of whom don't have legs, in your carport all the time. And so my wife was like, you're going to get a cat. Let's go. We're getting a cat. So we... So a, a, a nice family in the church had some extra cats, and so we got a couple of cats. One of them ran away, but one of them stayed and stuck, and they gave us these tailless cats. And it's not just that they don't have a tail. They're genetically different. Their rear end is different. And this particular cat, she's so sweet, but 
You're not supposed to use this word anymore. So she's clearly mentally challenged. She has seizures, and, but she's so sweet. Anyway, I'm driving down the driveway. Like, this is, this is how dumb this cat is. I drive down the driveway, and they all lay in the driveway. We have three cats and a dog, and two cats and one dog get up and get out of my way. This cat sees me coming and does this. She stands up, and she just goes in circles in the same spot. I'm like, this cat. So anyway, this cat started this habit of early in the morning when I open the door first thing to go work out. She runs in about three feet, does a circle around me, and then runs back out. That bugs me. I don't like that. So I started getting a spray bottle. And as soon as I opened the door, spraying her. After about four days of doing that, guess what? She doesn't run in the house anymore. Why? Because there was an immediate consequence to her bad behavior. You know, stop it. Works really good with pets. Works really good with toddlers. Works really good with young children. Doesn't start to work as well with older children. And please do not do this to your teenagers, okay? And, and your young adults, don't do that. Okay, once they're getting college, don't, don't do this. See, but the writer says here, because God doesn't treat people like toddlers or pets, we are more prone to do evil. That's what he says. Look with me at verse 11. He says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. See, the punishment didn't happen to this guy until after death. And so it didn't do him any good. See, what he's doing is he's giving us the negative view of karma. What he's saying is this guy deserved a bad life, and he didn't get it. The punishment came too late. Karma is a simplistic answer that doesn't actually work. It's not true. See, under the sun in a frustrating world, it's very easy for us to slip into simplistic answers to complex questions. Works-based, religious performance-based, karma Christianity is a very popular simplistic answer in a frustrating world, and it doesn't work. It's not true. The karma mentality makes people comply. Right? If I'm, if I'm a good person, I'll get good out of life. But it also tends to make people bitter and even mean. But they're very externally good moral people with good reputations, but they're ultimately forgotten. There's no depth there. Whereas on the other side, mercy or grace, a delay in punishment, it actually lets someone's true nature come to the top. And you can see who they really are without an immediate consequence. Many of you know I went to a Baylor University. Baylor's a religious school, and so it has a lot of religious people coming to it. The first year is a really interesting time to be there because you can immediately tell of all this, you know, there's like 3,000 new freshmen there. You can immediately tell who has been externally forced to be a good Christian and who actually did it from the heart because as soon as they get to college and there's no external constraints, you see these good captain youth group guys and gals just go completely nuts. Whereas the ones who actually had a relationship, they're, they, they still fall, they still mess up, but they're earnestly repenting and trying to walk in relationship. And that's kind of what's going on here. He's saying, you know, under the sun, gospel wisdom doesn't try to force compliance through a karma-esque, oh, be a good person because you'll get a good life. Instead, it steps back and says, let, let, let the gospel work on you. And see what arises out of your character. Because under the sun, gospel wisdom avoids the folly of karma. And the next thing gospel wisdom does is it embraces a defiant theology. I want to read again the kind of heart of this text. 
verses 12 through 14. So let's look at that together again. It says this, it says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will He prolong His days like a shadow because He does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. You see, in the face of what he sees under the sun, he is emphatic. He's even defiant about what he knows. Notice he usually says, here's what I see. He doesn't do that this time. He says, this is what I know. This is a defiant statement of faith. He looks at the life of a follower of God versus the faker from verse 10. He says, I know it's different. Here's how we put it for the kids. Boys and girls, let's look at verse 12. Make sure you're following with us here. It says this. It says, Even though sinners seem to get away with all kinds of evil, I know with all my heart that good comes to those who believe God's promises, who live as if God walked next to them. See, boys and girls, if you believe in Jesus, you are actually together with Him. It's called being united to Christ. And so what that means is God actually walks with you in your life because God is with His people through Christ. We don't enter into and then get out of His presence through our behavior in the Christian life. We tend to think we do, don't we? Oh, I've been a good Christian today. I must be really close to God. Oh, I haven't been so good today. I I must be far away. We have this idea that we're jumping in and out of His presence, but that's not true. In the gospel, we're united to Christ. We're in God's presence, and God walks with us. And we need to walk in that truth that God is with us. See, karma Christians, or Christians who kind of just have quit going to church, they don't really know that truth from the depth of their heart, that God is with them. Do you defiantly know that? Even when you have trials and struggles and difficulties, that God is with me because I'm united to Christ. Do you believe that God walks with you because of the work of Christ? Not because of your behavior. Not because of how religious you are. There's no power in that. Only frustration. Because it's not the gospel. And note what else he knows. He says, it will not go well with the wicked. He knows this. See, this theology is defiant because it's the exact opposite of what he sees around him and what you and I see around us all the time. The wicked do prosper. It does go well with the wicked. See, his heart is captured by the truth of grace, and so it anchors him in a frustrating world. I don't see this, but I know it's true. What is that anchoring truth? What is it that he holds on to? It's that God is a just judge. That judgment is coming and it comforts him. Now the idea of justice is a hard pill. Especially if you're not a Christian. And even if you are, we don't like to talk about God's justice and judgment doing. See, we have this idea, don't we, that God's justice and God's love are somehow incompatible. And so let's talk about love and let's kind of just keep God's justice like that you know, one cousin we don't like to talk about. See, but it's not true. A major part of God's love is God's judgment. Let me give you a quick example. Don't raise your hand, but if I were to ask you a pop quiz, is vengeance wrong? 
Most of you are probably, well, yeah, vengeance is wrong. No, it's not. The Bible does not say vengeance is wrong. The Bible says vengeance isn't yours. It's someone else's. The Bible does not say vengeance is wrong. It's an evil. No, it says vengeance is not our job. God reserves that job for himself. See, if you've been terribly wronged, one of the joys of heaven will be your vindication. When God takes vengeance on those who have wronged his people. And it will be righteous and it will be holy and it will be incredibly comforting. Those who hurt God's people may escape judgment on earth. But God will get them. And that's comforting to God's people. Now for some of you the idea of judgment still grates on you. I know, I know. Last week, if you remember, we talked a little bit about how the first part of this chapter really looks like social control. How it really looks like Karl Marx's thing, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. You, you convince them that the supernatural world wants them to be good, and then they don't rebel. It kind of looks like that here too, right? That What Marx was saying is that because you give them this pie-in-the-sky hope, it makes you not care about injustice in this world. It makes you ignore oppression in this world because you think, oh, it's going to happen later. It's going to happen later. But that's not Christianity. See, the Scripture teaches that God hates injustice. God hates suffering. God hates oppression more than anybody else. He hates it so much that He was willing to enter into it and fight against it in the person of Jesus Christ. See, that's the truth of Scripture. And I love how honest It is here. Even in the midst of this defiant theology, the writer admits that the world is frustrating and not as it should be. See, this is wisdom for the real world. He he says the ideal that he knows is true in verses 12 through 13, but then he observes the real world in verse 14 and says, this is so frustrating. Again, to make sure we all get this, let's look together at the children's translation of verse 14. It bugs me that the world is not as it should be. The faithful people have a difficult life, and the faithless people have an easy life? That's not right. See, this is the point where we have to either dig in defiantly and hold on to this truth, or we have to just reject it. See, there's, here's what I mean. There's a very popular attack on the people of God. It it's actually predates Christ, but for some reason it's been resurrected. And it's all over the internet. I've seen it very uh, recently. It's from a Greek philosopher named Epicurus. And here's what he said. He said this. He said, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? See, it's a very philosophical answer to the problem of evil. It's like, there's no God, basically. It's just a fairy tale, a dream. Now, maybe you don't ask it in such philosophical terms. Maybe your neighbors don't. But most of us at some point have asked these questions. Why doesn't God do something about evil? If he's so good, if he's so holy, I mean, seriously, what's up with that, God? And if you haven't been there, you're not being honest with yourself. We've all been in that frustration. But I can tell you from my own heart that such a question reveals a lack of really knowing yourself. Because so much is wrong with the world, because so much is wrong with us. Verse 11 reminds us our hearts are full of evil because God doesn't throw thunderbolts down immediately. And if God were to end every evil... 
he would have to end every person. He could get rid of evil by getting rid of people. See, that's why after confessing his defiant allegiance to the truth and confessing that he doesn't see that truth in the world, this writer is then honest when he confesses, I don't understand it and it frustrates me. Or as he says, that's vanity. It's empty. And so what does he do in his frustration? He goes, this is how God has promised. I know it's true. I don't see it. It frustrates me. And so what does he do? When what God promises doesn't appear true, gospel wisdom throws a party. Look with me at verse, at verse 15. Right there in the midst of all the toil of life, of the mysteries that confound us, after we have defiantly stood on God's truth, Scripture says, have a party. Eat, drink, be joyful, and enjoy life. It's right there. And that answer really bothers some of you, doesn't it? And if I may say so, it's because you haven't grasped the gospel. You're still living in a performance-based, religiously external, churchianity that's not Christianity. Again, let me give you an example. That's a pretty harsh statement. So many pastor's kids end up hating the church for, for many reasons. One of them is the idea that pastors are supposed to be grave, formal, serious people. Because Christianity is about grave, formal, serious things. And so unfortunately, many pastor's kids see their dads under that kind of pressure act like that person, even though that's not who they are. And they conclude, well, dad has to fake it to make Christianity work, and I have no interest in that. And they walk away. Because there is this pressure, isn't there, for not just pastors, but for Christians in general. To be serious, somber, mean people. I mean, almost everybody in the room has probably had a situation where you have expressed some sort of exuberance and someone has said something about, I didn't, you're a Christian and you do that? You know, our Savior himself was chided by the religious, grave, serious people of his day for being a drunkard and a reveler. They specifically said to him, actually, in Mark, they said, your disciples don't fast enough. They're too happy. And Jesus' response to them was, I'm here now. It's time for them to party. And because of the resurrection, dear flock, Jesus Christ is here now. He lives today, and it is time to party. Scripture here praises joy. It tells us to eat. It tells us to drink. And drink means exactly what you hope it doesn't. Why are we Christians so afraid to have joy, to have fun? Why does that come from our hearts? The answer is because we don't believe the gospel. We think that God is still mad at us for our sins. He has not fully poured out His wrath upon Christ, and so we've got to suffer some wrath too. We're afraid to be happy because guilty people shouldn't be happy. God is still unhappy with guilty people, and so if God's unhappy, we shouldn't be happy. And so we have to be serious and somber and grave to show God how serious we are about our sins, so maybe He'll forgive us if we're serious enough. And that's not biblical Christianity. And yet many of us in the room live in that, don't we? Salvation in Scripture, though, is actually presented as a banquet of joy. Joy. 
One of the things about this table is we don't just look back to the sacrifice of Christ. We do, but that's not it. This is also making us look future. This is an appetizer to the great wedding feast of the Lamb that is coming when Jesus Christ comes back for his church. One of the things that bugs me is that we have this little thimble of grape juice, these little cookie-like pieces of bread, when it should be a chalice of wine. Yeah, I said it. And it should be huge feasting food because it's a party and we're supposed to rejoice and have festival joy as communion, looking forward to what's going to happen. You see, salvation in Christ is not just a legal abstraction. It's presented as a festival, a meaningless word to us. A county fair, a state fair, let's go eat some of the best tasting, worst for you food ever invented, right? Yes, that's what you're supposed to go. That's the banquet. It's a picture of festival joy unlike anything we've ever known. It's not just a legal abstraction. And to keep us from doing that, the Bible repeatedly uses feast language so that we could, we could taste the sweetness of, the, of our salvation with our hearts so to speak. We can, we can savor the sweetness of it in the palate of our soul so we can know defiantly the joy promised to us just like this writer does. Now see, and that joy is predicated on the wrongs of verse 14 being reversed. On verse 13 coming true of the murderers, the monsters, the Hitlers being given justice and their victims being vindicated. That's the joy. You see, but the problem is, each of us is a little Hitler. Each of us has sinned. And if the hidden things in our life were known, there would be many calls for justice from people quite close to us. See, the only way that we can have such festival joy is that Jesus Christ left the joy of heaven. He lived in our world of struggle. And on the cross, He took the judgment that we deserved so we can have this promised joy. If you are united to Christ by faith, your day of judgment has already occurred. Imagine how much joy you could live in if you actually believed that. But even as I said that sin, as part of your heart said that's not true, didn't it? So let me say it again. If you are united to Christ by faith, your day of judgment has already occurred. God poured out the wrath for your sin on His Son and He crushed Him for it. And He gave the righteousness of His Son to you. And He says those incredible words because He sees us in Christ. You are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. God is well pleased with you. You don't have to jump through any more hoops. You can live in this joy. Wrath is not waiting for you. So you can live in promised joy now. So grab some friends, grab a beer, and have some fun in God's name is what verse 15 tells you. And I said it that way specifically to bother you because some of you stubbornly refuse to be joyful. It's not godliness. It's a denial of the gospel. And you need to repent. Quit resisting joy and just let it flow over you. If that is you, if you're mad at me right now, good. I would challenge you, because I'm going to talk to the people who aren't mad for just a second. Right now, I would challenge you, seriously, just take a moment before we come to this table and ask God, say, Lord, 
If I'm, I'm mad at Sean right now, prove me right or give me repentance. Ask God to do it right now. He will. So spend some moments in prayer. Now, others of you who aren't mad right now, you've been so hurt. You've been under such unfair treatment from others. Your heart just aches for justice. I know. Hold on to the truth of verse 13. God is coming. That justice is coming and God is not mocked. But at the same time, recognize before a holy God of justice, we are all in big trouble. If we got what we think we want, if Jesus Christ did come to earth with the sword of God's wrath in his hand, like, oh, right, he's going to get them unbelievers, the first person he would slay would be us. None of us would stand. See, but Jesus Christ did not come with the sword in his hand. He came to get nails in his hand. To die on the cross for your sins. To absorb the judgment that we deserve. And when you place your faith and trust in him, he will give you this promised joy. Oh, don't you want that? Aren't you tired of living in this blah Christianity that weighs you down, refusing to be joy? Let go of the guilt and the wrath you think you have to bear. Repent of that. Believe in the gospel that God has put all that on Christ and then live in the joy that Christ has earned for you. You can have that. Come and claim it in Christ's name. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Oh, Lord, those of us who've been around a while, we, we, we have to repent. Lord, we don't do this. We arrogantly and self-righteously think that through our seriousness, through our being formal, through our going through rituals, through what we wear and how we talk, we think that we somehow placate you that we somehow earn something Jesus didn't. We somehow take care of some sins Jesus missed and so that you like us more because we act like that. Father, would you please forgive us because I am the king of doing that. Would you please help us even now to cast off that, to repent of that unbelief and to embrace the joy of the gospel and to walk in that newness of life in joy in what Christ has done. And Father God, we pray for those here today who may not know you. We pray, Lord, that this palpable joy will be right before them. We pray, Father, that as you have promised that if Jesus Christ be lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. Would you do your work of grace even now and draw people to yourself? And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.